Well, good morning and Merry Christmas, Four Corners Church. What a joy to gather on Christmas Day. You know, it is not hard for me to remember the last time that Christmas fell on a Sunday. It's very easy for me to remember that. Six years ago today, our daughter, Adeline, was born. She's a Christmas baby. So we're celebrating two birthdays today in our home. And as many of you know, I had to call Will Daney uh, about 11.10, I think, the night before Christmas Eve. Uh, Jennifer had started to go into labor during the Christmas Eve service, but she didn't know it. And so uh, I, Will and I were talking as we were leaving the building. This was when we were over on, on 18 Savannah Street. And we were talking about how he was pretty much in the clear, right, already. Christmas Eve service, everything was looking good, everything was going to be fine. He was the backup preacher, and... Uh, well, Will was not in the clear. Uh, at 11.10, I gave him a call, and I heard his voice go, hello. <laughs> so he knew. He knew he was up to bat. So that was, uh, that was six years ago, which is really hard to believe. But it is such a blessing to gather again on a Christmas morning. Where, where else would we rather be than to be here with God's people, singing his praises, as we just did, hearing from his word, hearing his word read and, and taught, and just being together as God's people. We have our, our earthly natural families and we have our spiritual family. And, you know, we're going to spend eternity with our spiritual family, praising God. And we hope that our, our entire natural family uh, will be there with us as part of our spiritual family. But we are brothers and sisters in Christ. So what a joy to gather here together on this Lord's Day, which also happens to be Christmas Day. And our passage for the sermon this morning is Matthew chapter 2, verses 1 to 12. If you want to go ahead and go there in your Bibles. Matthew 2, 1 to 12. Today we're going to spend our time looking at the well-known story of the wise men. So this is one of those major Christmas passages. Uh, And the title for the sermon is The Wise Men and the Worthy King. These wise men come and they meet, they adore this worthy king as a baby, as a child. We get birth narratives for Jesus in two of the four Gospels. Uh, We get Christmas passages as we think of them all throughout the scriptures. Uh, Two that come to mind most are Philippians 2, a great passage in the New Testament that uh, describes Christmas. Theologically, Jesus coming down. Uh, And he uh, takes on human flesh and he dies for our sins and the Father exalts him. We think of John 1, 1 to 18, the prologue to John's gospel. In the beginning was the Word and the Word was with God. He was God. And then we fast forward and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. So Christmas is written all over the New Testament, we could say. Uh, But we get birth narratives for Jesus in only two of the gospels, Matthew and Luke and Daniel read to us earlier from the Gospel of Luke, those well-known manger and shepherd passages there back to back. And now we're going to go to Matthew as we take in the glory of this baby king, this child king. This is the one and only God-man. Blows our minds to understand what is called theologically the hypostatic union, that in Christ you have the divine nature and the human nature in one person. That Christ is truly, fully God, and he is truly, fully man. This is the greatest miracle in the history of the universe. There is nothing that could even match. God became man and dwelt among us. It is not that God, that the Son, the second person of the Trinity, gave up his divine nature and took on human nature. He added his human nature to his divine nature. And in the one person of Jesus, God dwelt with us. Jesus Christ is Emmanuel, incarnate deity, the Word made Flesh. And that's who we're here to celebrate this morning. I, I pray that he will be on your lips all day and every day hereafter as we celebrate this glorious king. So if you would stand with me, we're going to read God's word together. Matthew 2, 
verses 1 to 12. This is the living, powerful, sufficient, inerrant word of the living God. Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose, and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him in Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet. And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel." Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child, and when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. After listening to the king, they went on their way. And behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then, opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. You can go ahead and be seated. Let's pray to our Heavenly Father. Our Father, we come joyfully into your presence this morning as a congregation. God, in your good providence, we get to gather here today on this Christmas day, on the Lord's day, and worship you. And through this service, God, and we pray that it would truly honor you. Pray that the name of the Lord would be lifted up high here God, we ask that in our hearts and in our homes today that the glory of Christ would shine. Father, that this would be a day of great celebration as we think of the great gift that Christ is, that he truly is the greatest gift that we could ever have. And Lord, I pray that we would treasure him and love him, adore him, worship him, submit to him, serve him, That we would spread his name, just as the shepherds did. When they came and found him, they spread it about. Lord, that we would be your evangelists on this Christmas and beyond. That we would be those who want to see this king's great birth, great life, great death, resurrection and ascension and second coming and eternal glory proclaimed to all peoples. Father, would we start in our own homes? Would we we start with those whom you have entrusted to our care to give them the message of this glorious Christ? Father, would you guide us through this service? Help us to be reverent, to be joyful. Help us to be focused. We pray that you would settle our children so that we can all be here focused now on your word. Would you speak to our children as they're here with us, God? Would they not pass the time thinking about what's going to happen this afternoon or what they got this morning, Lord, but that they would see that there is no treasure like Christ and that all the things of this world, all that they could ever have, will one day rust and tear and be in a landfill. It will be nothing. It will fade away. But Christ is forever. Lord, would that be our great confidence, and would that be the message that our kids see? Would they see it in us? Would they hear it from us? And would they have it dwelling in their own hearts? God, we pray that you be glorified this morning through this time. Give us clarity as we come to your word. In Jesus' name, amen. 
So one basic question is going to guide our time this morning, and here it is. Who is this king? We know from the Gospel of Matthew, as he's going through, starts with the genealogy, that Matthew is concerned with showing that Jesus is the great fulfillment of the Old Testament, and specifically, he is the son of David. He is the fulfilled king. That's going to be Matthew's emphasis from the very beginning of the gospel, and we see even in the Sermon on the Mount, this is the king speaking to his citizens. And by the time we get to the end of the gospel, we will see Jesus, the king of the Jews, and even the words, the king of the Jews, above his head. This is one of the great themes of the gospel of Matthew. And as we come to this passage where we see these men coming and asking, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? We know that that is the great identity marker that we are to get about this baby. He is the king. So, basic question for us this morning is, who is this king? And I think this little story about the wise men gives us three simple answers. So, very easy for us here this morning. I know note-taking probably with all the smaller kids might not be as simple. So, just laid out very easily for us here. This king is the universal gift. He is the central figure. And he is the rightful recipient. This is who King Jesus is. So let's look first at the universal gift. Now for that, look with me at verses 1 to 2. Jesus Christ is the universal gift. Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. Now here we have three locations, three places in view. We have Jerusalem, Bethlehem, and then somewhere in the east, an unnamed place in the east. Herod, known as Herod the Great because of his accomplishments and his building projects, that ruthless tyrant is ruling from Jerusalem. So yes, in one sense, Herod the Great, he built the temple that was there at the time of Jesus. He built, uh, he was, uh, he built many things, but Caesarea was a city that he was uh, central in, in founding and building up. He was known for these great and glorious deeds, but really we could call him Herod the Terrible. Herod the ruthless, Herod the cruel, Herod the bloodthirsty. He was an awful tyrant. And he is ruling from Jerusalem under the greater authority of the Roman Empire. The greatest authority the world had seen up to that time. Herod is not a Jew, and yet he is the king of the Jews. And you're meant to get this great contrast here. Uh, There's Herod the king, and then there is the king of the Jews. Who is king? Christ, not ruthless Herod. So he's not a Jew. He's an Edomite. And he was placed, by the way, Edomite is a descendant of Esau. And he was placed on his throne by the Romans. So in 40 BC, he was made king of the Jews by Octavian, who became Augustus, the Caesar, and Mark Antony. We know the story of Mark Antony and Cleopatra. So he was made the king of the Jews in 40 BC by Octavian and Mark Antony. Herod cares only about his own rule. He cares for nothing but his own glory. Every little thing, and there's stories of him melting down gold in the palace in order to provide for the poor. Every little incident like that of any, uh, what would be seen as some kind of benevolence was really just a way of keeping the people in check so that he could reign and see his own glory. That is all Herod cares about. We have seen this theme with Pharaoh in Exodus. Herod is like a little Pharaoh. And the parallel with Pharaoh comes into clear focus later when Herod murders all the male children under two years old in the vicinity of Bethlehem. And so we see Herod... Taking all of the little children born to the, or Pharaoh, taking all of the little Hebrew children, throwing them into the Nile, and now we find Herod killing all of the little children below the age of two in the vicinity 
of Bethlehem. This is a Satan figure. And I think we're meant to understand that throughout Scripture. We get Christ figures and we get Satan figures. We get little anti-Christ figures, little precursors to that man of lawlessness who will arise at the end of time, to the Antichrist. Little Satan figures and Herod is one of them. He is ruling from Jerusalem. And then we have Bethlehem, the house of bread, as it is called, a little town five miles south of Jerusalem. And apart from being the birthplace of David, it has little significance. But here we read that Bethlehem is not just the birthplace of David, the great king of the Old Testament, but also of David's promised descendant, the one whom the Lord promised would rule on David's throne forever. And I appreciate what Trey did last night in, in helping us to see the significance of this great theme throughout Scripture of the Son of David. And Matthew is intent on showing us that Jesus Christ is the Son of David. He is the Messiah. He is the Christ, the King of the Jews. His name is Jesus, or Yeshua, which means the Lord's salvation. And he has recently been born, the text tells us, in Bethlehem of Judea. So we've seen Jerusalem, where Herod is ruling. We've seen Bethlehem, where baby Jesus, Yeshua, the Savior, the son of David, has been born. And that brings us now to our third location, somewhere in the east. We are told here that these foreigners, these men called Magoi in Greek or in Latin, Magi, which gets translated over to us in English as Magi, they have arrived in Jerusalem having come from somewhere in the east. They are in search of this baby king. When they arrive, they say who they're looking for. They, they already know that they are looking for the king of the Jews. Now, we are not told precisely who these men are. And many have speculated over where exactly they've come from or what role they play in their society. So what exactly are the Magoi and where do they come from? And how do we trace them historically? Because we're looking at a time period many years after the heyday of the Persians and the Babylonians. So who exactly are these Magoi and what role do they play in their society? They are probably of Persian or Babylonian descent. They are philosopher or scientist-like figures. You know, don't think scientist in a lab coat today, but what would have been seen as a scientist-like figure, as scientific as you're going to get back in those days, these were those sorts of men. The wise men, the philosophers, the scientist-like Figures. We meet them 500 years earlier in the book of Daniel. So in Daniel chapter 2, verse 2, now there is Daniel. He's in the court of Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon. And we see around Daniel, as he is with the king, we see these magoi. They appear on the scene. It says there in Daniel 2, 2, the king commanded that the magicians, the enchanters, the sorcerers, by the way, That's a bad list. In light of the Old Testament law, that is a bad list. All of those things are forbidden by God's law. Sorcery, necromancy, all kinds of magic. I'm not talking about sleight of hand sort of thing. I'm talking about the kind of thing we found with Pharaoh's magicians in Egypt. All of that wicked, evil, abominable, satanic, according to God's law. But we see here... That the king is commanding the magicians, the enchanters, the sorcerers, and the Chaldeans. He summoned to tell the king his dreams. So he had a dream, and he wants his wise men, he wants his enchanters, his sorcerers, magicians, to tell him what the dream is and what it means. So they came in and stood before the king. Now hear the word for magoi is translated in the Greek Old Testament. Uh, it's translated for us now uh, into English as magicians. And in fact, the word magos is where we get the word magician. So etymologically, we have this word magic and magician, and that goes back to this particular caste of people, to this particular role, this particular group called 
the Magoi. These are wise, priest-like, philosopher-like men who work alongside of enchanters and sorcerers. That's, that's their buddies, their, their colleagues in the religious and political life of the ancient Near East. These are not a nobody common type of people. These are people who are in the elites of society. They work with the highest ranks of society, even the king himself. These are the great men of ancient Persia and ancient Babylon. And here we see an emphasis on the stars. So at the end of verse 2, we read this. For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. Worship him. So it appears that in, in the midst of all, this other, all of the other things that they do, that they also, as part of their job, study the stars. They are astrologers, or we could see them as ancient astronomers. They give their time to studying the constellations, to studying the stars. And of course, wrapped into that in pagan society would be looking for signs of all sorts of things. So you have an astrology element and what even today would be an astronomy element, a sort of mapping out of the stars and understanding the heavens, understanding the phenomena of the heavens. What they have seen as star studiers in the sky has led them to Jerusalem. So here they are. They show up in the land of the Jews and they have come to pay homage to the king of the Jews. Now we'll come back to this star in a moment, but for now, here's the big idea I want you to get. So going back to the title for this point, the universal gift, here's the big idea that I want you to get. The wise men show us That this Jesus, this King of the Jews, is for all people. You know, you're wondering, why did Matthew include this story? Well, we've already talked about how it highlights Jesus' kingship. It highlights his royalty. He is the great king. But there's more than that. We're also meant to understand that this Jewish Messiah, this King of the Jews, is for all people. The shepherds in Luke 2 tell us that this king is for the lowest. He is for all people going all the way to the king down to the lowest of society. So the ragtag bunch of stinky, smelly shepherds. The angels go to them. This king is for the lowest. And these wise men in Matthew 2 show us that this king is for the farthest He's for the farthest off. Those who, as as Paul will say in Ephesians, were far off from God. Not partakers of the oracles of God. Not those bathed in the worship of God, the tabernacle and later the temple. Not those who have all the revelations of God given through the prophets. But those who are far off from God. Without hope in the world. This king is for all people. Even these Eastern Gentiles steeped in pagan practices. Now the truth is, we don't know what to make of these wise men. We don't really know what to make of their piety. We don't know what to make of their past or or their religious practices. We really don't have our, our hands around that. We're just not given much information about them. But given the lineage that they come from, I think we're meant to understand that they are They are right in line with what would be going on in the East. Their lives are probably filled with all sorts of pagan practices. This king is even for these kinds of people. He is for all people. He's for the, the Hindu priests. He's for the Buddhist monks. He's for all of them, not that they can keep their faith, their religious faith, but so they they can turn from godlessness and dead idols to this glorious Christ. He is for all the peoples of the world. This very day, who are steeped in all kinds of idolatry and paganism and spiritualism and everything else. He is for those who are farthest off. John Calvin calls these wise men the first fruits 
of the Gentiles. Now we know Christ came first to the Jews. Now the message has not gone out to the Gentiles. But here we're getting a little picture, a little precursor, a little preview of what God is going to do as the message of the gospel goes out to the ends of the earth to our ancestors, those of us here this morning who heard the gospel eventually. This is a little precursor, the first fruits of the Gentiles. That's what we're meant to think as we see these foreign guys coming to adore this Christ. Genesis twenty two eighteen 18 gives us God's promise to Abraham. And of course, we get this promise more generally earlier in chapter 12 of Genesis. But in Genesis 22, we read the Lord saying to Abraham, in your offspring, specifically, not just through you or in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed, but in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed. Who is that? This baby. And what are the wise men meant to tell us? They're meant to tell us that, that what God promised Abraham is happening through this little child. So let me just say this to all of us this morning. Jesus is God's great gift to all humanity. And this should affect, as we think about Jesus being God's gift, whom, whom God the Father sent and, and here we have the nations, as it were, streaming to this great gift, this precious treasure, his own son. Let us consider today, as we give gifts, that all of the gifts, as I told our kids this morning, you could fill this entire house with presents. They'd be hanging from the ceiling. You could fill every house in our neighborhood with presents. And it would all be like dirt compared to this Christ. These presents are nothing. Christ is everything. And he is for all peoples. And this brings our minds, I think, to uh, evangelism. It brings our minds to spreading this gospel to the nations, to missions, to seeing that the peoples of the world who are like the wise men here, steeped in their pagan practices, lost far away from God, that they would come to know this Christ. Not that we just sit comfortably in our homes and move comfortably through our lives while there are people unreached with the gospel. Maybe the Lord is calling you to go to, to, go to the nations. What if the Lord is calling you, even through this very church, calling you to give up your career, to give up all the things that you had hoped for for yourself to go to the nations so that people like this would come and bow to Christ the King. What if that's the case? Would you pray and ask the Lord if he would have you give up all to bring this Christ to the peoples of the earth? So we see first that he is the universal gift. Secondly, we see that he is the central figure. Look at verses 2 to 6. The wise men say... Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled. And all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. And they told him in Bethlehem of Judea. For so it is written by the prophet. And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. The contrast here is striking, is it not? The Gentiles have eagerly traveled a long distance to see the Christ. A long way. They're excited. Their hearts are full of anticipation and expectation to see this Christ. While the Jews are troubled. Excitement versus being troubled. And I think we're meant to see in this a preview of the Jewish rejection of the Messiah, of the Messiah of Christ. We're, we're meant to see in this that the Jews will reject their Christ largely as we talked about so much in Romans. All throughout Romans, but especially Romans 9 through 11 as we talked about how, how God will blind the Jewish people. 
to the Messiah, that he will harden their hearts, and only some, the remnant, will believe in the Christ, but largely the nation will reject their Christ. They will actually kill their Christ. And the Gentiles will come streaming in, of course, not for us as Gentiles to become prideful, knowing that God will one day unharden the Jewish people, and they will turn as a people to their Christ. But now we see a preview here, even at his birth, a preview of what's going to happen. He's going to be rejected. His people will be troubled, and that will lead to his crucifixion. But the Gentiles eagerly stream to him. Herod, of course, feels threatened by any mention of another king, especially one who will claim to be the liberating Messiah. Even though Herod killed three of his own children, Herod would like to kind of keep his, you know, his rule in the family. The idea, he's 70 years old at this time, he's an older man, but he doesn't like the idea of some other king. I'm king. Who does this little baby think he is, this little child, and what is this expectation of some king? You're, you're looking at the king. He would have been thinking to these wise men. The Jews are probably troubled because Herod is troubled. Now, this whole thing creates upset. It takes away from the peace. And Herod gets agitated. People start dying. Things, bad things start happening. So probably the people are troubled because of Herod's possible agitation. So Herod sends the religious leaders to the Hebrew scriptures. Where where is this expected Christ? Go and look in your books. I don't know anything about those books. Go go look in those books. Where is this expected, or those scrolls rather, where is this expected Christ supposed to come from? And they respond, these chief priests, these political figures, and these scribes of the people, these theologians, these scholars, those who studied the law, where is this expected Christ supposed to come from? And they know the answer. They know the text well. And they respond with the prophecy from Micah 5 too. And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. So according to prophecy, this Christ will be born in none other than Bethlehem of Judea. Now there's also a, and there's another Bethlehem, the tribe of Zebulun, Galilee. That's not the Bethlehem. This is the Bethlehem. In the land of Judah and Judea, Ephrathah, as it is called, this is the place where Christ will be born. What I want you to see here with this star and this prophecy taken together, and this is my point, this is what I'm getting at, is that this Jesus is presented as the central figure of both space and time. So we've seen how the wise men show us that he's the universal gift. God sent him for all peoples. And now we're seeing that both the star and the prophecy point to Jesus' centrality. He is the central figure of both space and time. So let's look at each of these. First, there's the star. Jesus is the focal point on earth From the heavens, from the perspective of heaven, there's no other place to look. He is the center. He is the focal point. The wise men saw his star when it rose in the east and somehow it has led them to Jerusalem. Later in verse 9, we read that the star reappears when they leave Herod. And then it stops over the house where Jesus is living. Very A strange kind of movement going on here. But the star stops over the house. This is precision as it's described to us. In their interpretation of the stars, do these wise men have in mind some tradition perhaps that was handed down from Daniel over 500 years earlier. We know Daniel prayed three times a day. We know Daniel wrote his own prophecies. You can't imagine a situation in which Daniel is in Babylon and then in Persia, under Persian control, and he's not sharing anything with any of these enchanters and sorcerers and magicians. Of course he is. And Daniel, we know, is one of the most 
if not the most revered man in the land. Is there some kind of influence from Daniel over 500 years before that has now made its way down through the centuries to this group? We don't know how many of Magoi, of wise men, of Magi. Could they have in view the prophecy in Numbers 24, 17 from the time of Moses? Perhaps Daniel had talked about this prophecy as he had described his own prophecies that the Lord had given him about the coming of the Christ, the anointed one, in Daniel chapter 9. Did he also have in mind perhaps Numbers 24, 17? And Daniel himself had connected the two texts and other texts for these magoi many centuries before Numbers 24, 7, 17 says, I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. And then listen to this. A star shall come out of Jacob, and a scepter shall rise out of Israel. So here we find a star and a scepter linked together. That There's a, there's a relationship between a star and the symbol of a king. We know that during this time, this is, this is fascinating, that pagan writers discuss Suetonius and Tacitus. They, they have nothing to do with Christianity for sure. These pagan illuminaries of the Roman Empire, these, these great Roman writers, describe that during this time there was in the East, they say this, there was in the East a great expectation that a ruler would rise from Judea. That's written in Suetonius and Tacitus, which means that at the time of Christ, there is this, there is this sort of stir going on. And we would think it no other way, right? Of course, the Lord is working. But maybe this all goes back to Daniel. And we're meant to connect the wise men with Daniel. There have been various interpretations of this star Uh, Leon Morris, one commentator, says, Many attempts have been made to explain the phenomenon of the star, such as that there was a conjunction of planets or the explosion of a supernova or the appearance of a comet, but none carries conviction. What is clear is that the Magi reported some astronomical phenomenon that they had some way of linking with a particular king the king of the Jews, but they do not say what the link was. The text leaves us hanging. And and we spend all of our time asking questions that the text is not interested in giving us answers for. Why don't we spend our time asking the questions that the text wants us to ask and that the text wants to give us answers for? But of course, speculation abounds as to what exactly this star is and what the link is between the king. John MacArthur says this, some suggest that it was Jupiter, and I recently watched a documentary on that uh, describing using ancient um, software, astronomical software, you can, where you can go back to the stars back then and look and try to figure out the different dates and so forth where this uh, guy was describing how it was Jupiter. But some suggest that it was Jupiter, the king of the planets. Others claim that it was the conjunction of Jupiter and Saturn. Still others claim that it was a low-hanging meteor or an erratic comet. Comet. John MacArthur goes on to conclude this. It was surely the glory of God, blazing as if it were an extremely bright star, visible only to the eyes for whom it was intended to be seen. So he does not see it as an actual star. He sees it as being understood figuratively as the glory of the Lord shining and leading the wise men to baby Jesus. And that got me thinking about the shepherds. Remember when Christ is born, there's this great, the glory of the Lord surrounds uh, these angels and they declare it and then they go back up to heaven. Well, what if that's when the star, as it were, appeared, the glory of the Lord shining? And that's the basis for the wise men's journey. The truth is, we don't know what this phenomenon was, but one thing is clear. It highlights the immense significance of Jesus. If a star shining from space or from the sky, however it was, does not show significance, then I don't know what could. It shows the immense significance 
of Jesus. The star functions like a heavenly spotlight shining down on the one who is the center of the universe. Now think of that. It is as though God turned on a lamp. He turned on a spotlight and said, he's the one. He's my son. He is my Christ. He is the one you must worship and obey. Lord, our Father put the spotlight on his son, the little baby, Jesus. And that is the same effect, this spotlight on Christ is the same effect we get with this prophecy through Micah. So it's not just the star that shows Jesus' centrality, it's also the prophecy. The prophecy is like a star shining on the centrality of Jesus. So we have a star, and then we have the star of the ancient text, the star of the ancient prophecy. This child king is the fulfillment of the ages. He is the offspring of Eve who will crush the head of the serpent, Genesis 3.15. He is the offspring of Abraham, through whom all the families of the earth will be blessed. Genesis 22, 18. He is the son of David, who will rule forever. 2 Samuel 7, 13. And here, quoting from Micah 5, 2, and 4, he is the humble ruler from Bethlehem, who will shepherd God's people, Israel. Now just, I want to pause for a moment, ask a question. How is it that this king, this ruler, this Christ, will shepherd his people. And the answer is given for us in John chapter 10, verse 11. Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. And what does it mean for Jesus to be the good shepherd? Well, he tells us in the next sentence. He says this, the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. And so here we see this emphasis on Christ as the shepherd, this reference to him as the shepherd at his birth. We are meant in our minds to go forward to the means by which he gathers his flock and protects his flock and leads his flock to those still pastures, to that nourishing food. How does he do it? By his shepherdly death on our behalf. He is the ruler. He is the shepherd. He is the promised one. So what's my point? All time, past, present, and future has its meaning with reference to this Christ. He is the centerpiece, the focal point of all of human history. And this prophecy is meant to show us that very truth, among other things. Galatians chapter 4, verse 4. When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son... Born of woman, born under the law. The fullness of time, at just the right time, according to God's eternal divine plan, at just the right time, he sent his Christ, the focal point of all of human history. So here's the question for each of us this morning. If Jesus is the center of the universe... If Jesus is the focal point of all of human history, then let me ask you this. Where is he in your life? He's central. Period. He's the center of all. Where is he in your heart? Where is he in your time? Where is he in your home? Where is this Christ? Is this central figure at the center or is he somewhere on the margins? And just think about how you spend your time. Just think about what you, what you think about. Think about what you think about when you're riding down the road. This is one of the ways that I know what my idols are is when I'm... this. A lot of people, most people probably listen to music when they're in their car. I talk to myself. I reflect. I think. I sort of just plan. This is what I do. So if you see me talking, I may be on the phone. I may just be talking to myself if you drive by me. (laughs) But one of the ways that I know what my idols are is what in the world am I talking to Lonnie about 
when I'm driving down the road? What am I reflecting? I was thinking about this the other night. I've been in the car for a while, thinking about something, planning something, you know, going over something, mulling over it, repeating it, and thinking, my goodness, this is, this is absurd. Like, this, Lonnie, this is, this is a big thing, a part of what you live for. This is more at the center than Christ. What, what is it for you, and how do you know? How do you know? How can you detect what it is that you got at the center of your life, and it's not Christ? It's something else. Christ is over there on the margins. Isn't it ridiculous that we talk about reading the Bible as though we just read our Bible every day? We check that. We should be in our Bibles all throughout the day. We should be in our Bibles all the time. Not just, I did it on a Monday morning, Tuesday morning, Wednesday morning. Okay, good. Ah, skipped a few. All the day. Christ should be at the center of everything meditating and singing and making melody in our hearts to God with gratitude to our Father through our Lord Jesus Christ. Addressing one another in songs and hymns and spiritual songs. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. Not check a box and then go off to work. Go off to play. Where is Christ? God says he's central with the star and with the prophecy But where is he to us? So we see the central figure. Now we come to the fact that Christ is the rightful recipient. This king is the universal gift. He is the central figure. And this king is the rightful recipient. Let's read verses 7 to 12 together. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly. And he ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child. And when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. After listening to the king, they went on their way. And behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. Most of us know how the story unfolds at this point. Herod secretly speaks to the wise men, questioning them about the timing of the star And commissioning them to go find the child. He deceitfully tells them to report back the child's whereabouts. So that he can go and worship him. I too want to worship this king of the Jews. Would you please? He must have been pretty convincing. Because it took a dream to tell the wise men not to go back. And these guys are wise men. They're not not known for their naivete. They're known for uh, being a little bit discerning. But apparently Herod was pretty believable. I would like to go and honor him as well. When in fact, Herod wants to kill him. We know what Herod will go on to do when the wise men, he says, discovered that the wise men had tricked him, that they didn't come back. He will go and send his soldiers into the vicinity of all of Bethlehem and kill every child, every baby boy, two years and younger. So we wonder what age was Jesus at the time. We don't know. I, I don't think he was really quite close to two Because given Herod's intentionality and ruthlessness, I think Herod wants to make sure. I mean, Jesus could be nine months, ten months, but Herod just wants to be 100% sure that he gets him. So he's going to go way above and beyond. And the wise men could have been a little bit off in their calculations. He's not going to make any error here. So he's just going to scoop up as many of those little children as he can so that he kills the Christ. This is a man... At war with God, this is a Satan figure. The wise men set out, and once again, guided by the star, they are led right to where Jesus is living. And this is not the manger scene, but we don't know how old Jesus is at this point, and we don't know exactly what this house would have been like, what sort of accommodations there would have been, but apparently Mary and Joseph, they stick around in Bethlehem for a while, and they have a house now. They're no longer uh, in this manger scene, but they're in some kind of more permanent dwelling. The wise men enter the house. 
They give homage and gifts to Jesus, and then they go back to their home country another way. Verse 12, and being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. Well, that's what happened in the story. So I've just kind of walked through and summarized for you what happened in the story. But now I want to spend a little time focusing on what happened in the wise men. We see what happened in the story. What happened in the wise men? What was their response to finding Jesus? And we see three. Put quickly and simply, rejoicing, bowing, and offering. The three responses we see of these wise men. Rejoicing, bowing, and offering. So let's look at those. First, rejoicing. Verse 10. They rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. Now last week we talked about uh, Moses' song. And the way that all of this worship language is just piled up together and kind of crammed together, even in this sort of bulky kind of way, just to, to do everything that human language can do to praise God. Well, that's sort of what Matthew is doing here. He is capturing in, in the most robust way what the wise men felt when they realized that they were coming up on this baby king. The text in Greek literally reads, they rejoiced a great joy exceedingly. So it doesn't just say they had joy. It says they rejoiced a joy. And it doesn't just say they rejoiced a joy. It says they rejoiced a great joy. And it doesn't just say they rejoiced a great joy. It adds exceedingly. What does that even look like? To rejoice a great joy exceedingly. It's just piled up. It's meant to communicate to us the unspeakable satisfaction and delight that these men had when they came into, now this is amazing, what would have been a very unkingly environment. They've just been, listen, in the palace of Herod. They've just seen all the magnificence and opulence of Herod, the great builder. Well, they weren't impressed with that. That was nothing. Now they come into this little no-name town. In this little shack. Remember, Mary could not offer in Jerusalem a lamb. She had to offer two birds because they were poor. They didn't have enough money to offer a lamb, and so the law made a a provision for those who didn't have as, as much money. That's what Mary and Joseph offered for her purification according to the law. They're living in some little shack probably. And even if it's not a shack, this is a humble dwelling in Bethlehem, the humble city. And there they are, walking into this place with exceeding joy at seeing this little baby. There is nothing kingly about this environment. Nothing. It's a child. It's a small town. And it's a little house. But these men are delighted unspeakably. Second, we see their bowing. Verse 11, and going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshiped him. I mean, this is an incredible image. We're not talking about some, you know, sort of sterile bow, maintaining dignity. You know, you think of, you think of this sort of very, very bearing-like uh, pose, this, this bow that maintains dignity. There's no dignity to be had. There's just joy. This is a joy bow. And it's just a falling on their faces before a peasant child. These are men who live among kings. They walk among palaces. And they're falling on their faces before a peasant child. We don't know if this is just homage to a king or recognition of his divinity, we really don't know the the extent of understanding that is in the wise men. But the way that Matthew uses this word worship to prostrate suggests that something more than mere respect is in view. So regardless of what is in the hearts of the wise men, what Matthew is trying to communicate is that this one is worthy of worship. He is the Lord God of heaven. He will calm the sea. He will raise the dead. He will forgive sins. He is 
the Lord himself. Third, we have offering, verse 11. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. Calvin, John Calvin, understands these to be the choicest productions of their country, the very best of the land. So why did these guys give gold and frankincense and myrrh? For Calvin, it's just these were the best that their land had to offer. And he goes on to say this, almost all commentators indulge in speculations about those gifts as denoting the kingdom, priesthood, and burial of Christ. And they make gold the symbol of his kingdom, frankincense of his priesthood, and myrrh of his burial. But Calvin goes on to conclude, I see no solid ground for such an opinion. Well, others have disagreed, as he said, almost all commentators, and I'm not going to sit up here and give you speculations about that, but you do see that frankincense is is used as an incense, and we see gold as a picture of royalty, and myrrh, we know, at the end of the Gospels, was used was given up to Jesus as an anesthetic. Also, we know that it was used in Jesus' burial. And so I'm inclined to see significance in these gifts, but, but not a, a precise kind of significance. It's hard to determine exactly what these gifts are for. But we see the very best offered to this universal supreme gift. As we close this morning... I want to take a moment and translate the response of the wise men into our own lives. What should be our response to this king? Let me ask it this way. What effect should the Christ of Christmas have on us? Or asked another way, what should we give to this rightful recipient, this worthy king? And very quickly, I think we see we give him our satisfaction we find our happiness in Jesus. You know, one of, the, way, one of the, the great things that sickness and calamities do in our lives is they help us to realize all the things that we find our happiness in. When calamities come our way, they provide a, a, a mirror, they provide a spotlight into all the ways that we find happiness not in Jesus. And what this reminds us with these wise men, as they they come with this superlative delight at Christ, it reminds us that our happiness must be in this great treasure, must be in Jesus. Our veneration, we give to him our veneration. We push him up and it pulls us down. As we fall on our faces before this glorious king, it humbles us. Pride is a symptom of ignoring the glory of Christ. Where we see the glory of Christ, we fall down on our faces. Our submission, we bow to the will and command of this king. You know, maybe there, the scriptures for you, maybe the Lord has been convicting you in a way that you're disobeying God's word. And you just keep doing it and keep doing it and keep doing it. One of the responses of Christmas, one of the responses to the Christ of Christmas, to this king, as we see from the wise men, is that we fall down before him, hail him as king, and submit to his authority. It does no good to call Jesus king and not to do what he says. Jesus said, you call me Lord. Why do you not do what I say? We call Jesus Lord with our hearts and our lives when we obey his commands. And finally, our consecration. They give the very best that they have to Christ. All that we have, we offer to Christ. Who gets your best? Who gets your best? It should be Christ. He gets our best and our all. Everything we do for our wives is for Christ. Everything we do for our kids is for Christ. Everything we do in this church is for Christ. It's all unto him. Whatever you do, work heartily as unto the Lord, not for men. Serving Christ. So Jesus Christ is the worthy king. And he is the rightful recipient of all these things. So let me ask us this morning. On this Christmas day, why do we give them to idols? Why do we give our satisfaction, our veneration, our submission, our consecration to earthly gods that perish? They belong to him. They belong to the king 
of the Jews, the King of the universe, the Christ of Christmas. Let's pray. Father, we rejoice this day. We rejoice this day over the great gift that Jesus Christ is to us. Father, we thank you that you have given us Emmanuel, God with us, that you have given us this king who will rule forever, this king who gives us all that we need and who is himself all that we need. Father, would Christ be central to us this Christmas and every day to follow? Would we see him as the universal gift, as the great gift, greater than anything we could have in this life? Health, good income, comfortable job, easygoing life, good relationships. Whatever it is, Lord, that we think is so great, would we see that Christ is so much greater And that sometimes, Lord, you will discipline us. Sometimes you will take these things away from us to show us how central and satisfying he really is. Father, we pray that we would worship this worthy recipient, this rightful recipient of all praise. Thank you for this time to gather today on Christmas Day. We pray you be with our Lord's Supper now, Lord. Would we remember Christ and what he did for us? Would we think of this myrrh used as a burial already presented here? At his birth, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.